God, would you stop and give you praise uh, for the many promises that are found in your word? Lord, one promise I'm especially grateful for is that your word will not return void, but it will accomplish its purpose. Lord, we pray as we approach 1 Samuel 11, we know that you have a purpose in this word, or we may not always know it, we may not see it, but we pray that you would accomplish it in our hearts and our lives. Lord, you know what each and every one of us is walking through better than we do. So Lord, we are listening to you. We want to receive what you have for us, and so speak, Lord, we pray in Christ's name, amen. One of our favorite activities that we like to do as a family is go to the park and play on the playground. We've done this hundreds of times. We've been at so many different parks, and there are so many different themes that emerge when you go to the park and you watch other families, other parents, and other kids Uh, there are many themes I could share. I'll share one of them with you. I'm a firm believer uh, that there are two different kinds of kids at the playground. There's uh, the kinds of kids that are the peacemakers, and then the other kinds of kids, they are the instigators. All right, next time you're at the park, just take a step back and watch. You'll see every kid falls in one of those two camps. The peacemakers, they're there, and then they just want to have a fun time. They want to include everybody. They're sharing. They're kind. They're nice. Um, they're, They're the peacemakers. But then you have the other kinds of kids where everything is a war. It's a you versus me mentality. They're territorial, they're adversarial, and they're not very kind. Now, I share that with you because just like the fact that there are two different kinds of kids at the playground, so too there are two different kinds of Christians. On one hand, there are the kinds of Christians who believe that the Christian life is largely just a big happy playground where we're just kind of here to have fun, and everything's kind of happy and easy, and, and we're, just, we're just here to have a good time. But then there are the other kinds of Christians where they say, no, 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 this is not a playground. This is a battleground that we're in, that the Christian life is largely a war, and that we shouldn't have a peacetime mentality, but there is a real spiritual enemy and we are in a real spiritual war. Uh, Yes, you can have joy, and we've got peace with God, but we must be sober-minded. You know, in the New Testament, I firmly believe that the way that it characterizes the Christian life is much more of a warfare than a playground. That passages like Ephesians 6, where we're told that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against real spiritual enemies. Ephesians 6, we're told to put on the full armor of God that we might be able to stand firm against our enemy. 2 Corinthians 10, we're told that the weapons of warfare have divine power to destroy strongholds. Told in 2 Corinthians 6 that our weapons are are weapons of righteousness. There's so much language about the Christian life being that of a War, but have you ever stopped to consider why? Why does the Christian life, why is it more of a battleground than a playground? Well, the New Testament writers are are taking what was physical warfare in the Old Testament, and they are metaphorically applying it to the real spiritual warfare today. So when you read the New Testament, behind the warfare language there in the New Testament, there is the actual physical warfare in the Old Testament. In fact, 1 Samuel chapter 11, this is a 
specific example of uh, war- warfare, physical warfare, among God's people and their enemies. And I know this was taking place 3,000 years ago, but I'm going to explain the story here this morning, and then we're going to get to some practical takeaways, because if you're like me, you could benefit uh, about lessons on appropriate combat. So let's explain the story here. We jump in, and chapter 10, last week, we noticed that Saul was finally anointed and proclaimed as king. Now, despite the people's enthusiasm, right, they're like, long live the king, Saul has done absolutely nothing. He's actually been incredibly passive. He's even been fearful. And chapter 10 left us with kind of this cliffhanger because Samuel sent everybody home. And as they're kind of leaving, there are those naysayers that basically say to Saul, how can this man save anyone? Well, that sets up perfectly what we find in chapter 11, verse one. We see right off the bat, a very real threat to Israel Uh, It's not the Philistines, although they're still there. It's now the Ammonites, all right? So Israel is being really attacked on both sides. Now, maps and geography matter, especially in this chapter. So let me point out to you a couple of different important geographical markers here, some uh, some things that we need to know, because there's a lot of towns and locations in chapter 11 that if you can't visualize it, uh, you might be lost. So The Ammonite territory, this is about 40 miles northeast from Gibeah. Uh, The Ammonite territory is right around here. So you can notice that it's really close to Jabesh Gilead, which is a town uh, from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, And then a couple other places down here. So Gibeah is going to be mentioned here. This is where Saul is from, again, about 40 miles uh, away from the Ammonite territory. And then Gilgal is right here. Okay, the Jordan River kind of divides all of that up. The Ammonites are on the east side of the Jordan River. And again, visually, you can see the squeeze that Israel's experiencing. You got the Philistines on the west and then the Ammonites on the east. Just kind of visualize all of those locations here as we move through uh, this chapter. Now, who are the Ammonites? Well, the Ammonites are, uh, well, they were uh, distant relatives of the Israelites, They were actually descendants of Lot. Lot was Abraham's nephew, and they were always hostile to Israel. So again, you've got the Ammonites on the east, Philistines on the west. This is a crisis for Israel. The people of Jabesh-Gilead are in serious trouble. Notice what happens here in the first couple verses. We read that the Ammonite leader, Nahash, whose name literally means serpent or snake, absolutely ruthless. He besieged Jabesh-Gilead, which forced them to ask for this treaty with the Ammonites, which was kind of a form of surrender. Nahash was so brutal that he said, okay, I'll accept the treaty here, kind of your form of surrender, with one condition. And that condition is to gouge out everyone's right eye. This is kind of his go-to move, uh, per the historians. This is what he liked to do uh, to his enemies. It was not only ruthless, it was also strategic. Warfare during this time had, that the warriors had this shield and the shield would cover up the left eye, making the right eye really, really important in order to actually see. And so for Nahash to gouge out that right eye made them just helpless fighters, made them fully dependent upon Nahash uh, moving forward. But the motivation for this is to bring disgrace upon Israel. 
Now we see some negotiations taking place. Nahash um, allows them seven days to go and find a savior, someone to come and kind of rescue them. That's how confident Nahash was, right? He allows them to go ask for help from all of Israel. I'll explain in a moment why he did that. But if after the seven days, no one can save them, then they will surrender to Nahash. Now, from a literary perspective, we do see a link between chapter 10 and chapter 11. We see this bridge, if you will, that's built on the theme of salvation. Again, chapter 10, verse 27, that very profound question, how can this man, Saul, save anyone? Okay, so this idea of salvation pops up there. But then you move through chapter 11, and three different times we see the word salvation in the Hebrew, verse 3, verse 9, and verse 13. I'll unpack that as we move um, through this. Now, another thing to point out as we kind of get going here in the first chapter, or chapter 11, is that everything that happens in this chapter is directly connected to an event or an episode that took place in the book of Judges or the book of Joshua. And I'm going to explain the significance behind each of these episodes. But for example, we need to understand the history uh, with Jabesh Gilead. Okay, there was a significant and horrific event that took place at the end of the book of Judges, in Judges 19 through 21, that shook all of Israel. And what happened was that there was a Levite whose concubine was brutally treated and was murdered by men from Gibeah, a town of Gibeah, which is where Saul is from, which was located in the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, this Levite um, took his concubine's dead body and basically chopped it up and sent various pieces all over Israel. And he did that basically as a call to war, that justice needs to be handled here. Well, everybody responds. All the, all the tribes, all the towns respond, except for one town. And that town was the town of Jabesh Gilead. And so all of Israel is kind of going after Gibeah of Benjamin here. And after they put the smack down on them, they then go over to the town of Jabesh Gilead and they attack them and they put the beat down on them as well. Now, the, there's concern that they're gonna completely annihilate the whole tribe of Benjamin, right? You've got Gibeah and you've got Jabesh Gilead, both towns of the tribe of, of Benjamin. And so they take 400 women from Jabesh Gilead and they gift uh, those women to, uh, to Benjamin so that they would avoid being completely annihilated, okay? So that's the background. That happened a few decades before chapter 11 of 1 Samuel. And so Jabesh Gilead, who didn't come to the aid of all of Israel, just kind of decided to be Switzerland, like they're now in a position where they need help. They need assistance. They need somebody to come and rescue them. And so this situation, what we need to feel and understand, it is hopeless. There's not a lot of hope for someone to step up and be like, oh yeah, Jabesh stepped up for us back then. So we're going to come to their aid now, right? Not a whole lot of hope. Well, it takes us to verses four through seven. We see these messengers who are allowed to go out from Jabesh Gilead, and they're looking for a savior. They, they finally arrive at Gibeah of Benjamin, where Saul was. Now remember, the end of chapter 10, Samuel sent everybody home, and so the newly appointed king of Israel is out farming. 
right? He's probably out looking for lost donkeys. And, and these messengers come and they explain what has happened. And you notice in verse four, all, all of God's people are crying here. They're, they're weeping, they're lamenting the situation here. And then you've got poor old Saul who kind of stumbles upon the news. He has to ask what had happened. We feel the irony here. No one is seeking Saul. No one is thinking Saul can save us. Saul can help us. Let's go find him and see what he would have us do. Even in his own hometown, people are not looking for him to help. He has to inquire what happened, what's going on here. Well, all of that is about to change. Look at verse six, describes a scene very similar to the Hulk. Upon hearing this dreadful news, Saul is filled with this righteous anger, this God-inspired anger, and the Spirit of God once again rushes upon him. Right? We mentioned this last week. This is really important because in the Old Testament, and in particular the book of Judges, the Spirit of God would empower specific individuals for a particular task or crisis to handle. It happened repeatedly in Judges, and it's, it's happening here to Saul. Now, yes, it did happen last chapter, and Saul did nothing. Uh, so we could maybe view this episode as a nice booster shot, if you will, to kind of get the job done. Verse 7, upon this rush of the Spirit, he's filled with righteous anger. Notice what Saul does. Saul took some of his own oxen, cut them up into pieces, and he sends them all over Israel. Imagine getting that in the mail, right? This is the first message from the first king of Israel, and the message was this. Come and fight against the Ammonites, or this too will happen to your oxen. Not quite the message. Well, this is also to kind of be a little bit reminiscent of what happened at the end of the book of Judges, right? Judges 19 through 21. What did the Levite do to his, uh, the body of his dead concubine? He chopped her up and sent those pieces all over Israel as a call to war. So Saul's doing basically the same thing here. And notice the response here, verse 7. The dread of the Lord or the, the terror of the Lord, the, the fear of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. Now, this is a significant response because at this point in time, all these tribes, they were not unified as one nation. That's coming, but that's not yet. They were still disjointed. In fact, they would even have a few civil wars in their history here, and on occasion, they would unite and fight a common enemy, but they are certainly not united before this point in time. But Saul is leading the charge. Saul being filled by the Spirit of God. This is marking a new beginning. But there's also a message underneath what is happening here. And here's the message. In Judges 19 through 21, you could basically describe Gibeah as a Sodom-like place, right? What they did to that, the, the concubine of the Levites and the lack of remorse, the lack of repentance, their view upon Gibeah was a place of evil and perversion and sinfulness and brokenness, a place of destruction to the point where this civil war breaks out at the end of the book of Judges. But now, look at 1 Samuel 11, this place of evil, this place of brokenness and sin and, and destruction now becomes the source 
of salvation and deliverance. Because who's leading the people now? It's Saul of Gibeah. Saul's unifying God's people, rallying God's people for the good of Israel and the glory of God. And oh, by the way, more specifically, they're, they're going to go save that town, Jabesh Gilead, who didn't come to the aid of Israel a few decades before. Do you see the dramatic reversal that's happening here? Do you see what, what God is doing as he's redeeming this situation? The people of God here, Israel's like, nothing good comes out of Gibeah. Gibeah is a place of evil and perversion, and there's no way Saul can actually lead God's people, and yet that's exactly what's happening here, that God is doing what he does best, that he is bringing light out of darkness. He is taking something that is broken, that is evil, that is sinful, and he is transforming it, he is redeeming it, and he is reversing it for the good of his people and the glory of God. This is what God does. We serve a God of amazing reversals. And I wonder, if you, can you stop and just think about a particular example in your own life of God doing just this? Maybe you can think back upon a particular event or experience that was marked by brokenness or sin or evil or, or pain. And, and in the moment, you're wondering, how in the, what is God doing? Well, what is God up to? But now you can look back and see, ah, no, that's what God was doing. God redeemed that. God transformed that. God reversed that for my good and for the good of the people around me. And this is the kind of God that we serve, a God of reversals. And if you're a Christian in the room, like you, you have a great example of your salvation story of God reversing a very hopeless situation, a very broken and sinful situation. That you were an enemy of God. Your eyes were, you were sinfully blind to seeing the beauty of Jesus. You were on your way to hell. And yet God stepped in, reversed that situation, redeemed that situation, opened up your blind eyes, gave you the gift of faith for you to believe and become a Christian and be saved. Like all of us have those same stories. And we see God doing that right now, right here in Israel's history. And maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you're trying to think of an example, but maybe you're here and you're walking through something and you're not on the other side of it yet. I'm sure there's probably several people in the room who would say, yeah, I'm, I'm still stuck in Judges 19 through 21 and I'm not in the first Samuel 11 point in time. Maybe you're walking through something right now and all you see is brokenness. All you see is sin and, and, and pain, maybe even evil, and you are wondering, God, what are you doing? Look, if that's you this morning, can I just encourage you? Don't give up. Don't, don't throw in the towel. Don't lose hope in a God who has a track record of redeeming and restoring anything. Look, if you're here and you say, yeah, my marriage is a lost cause. Like, we are hanging by a thread. Look, do not give up. God is in the business of restoring and redeeming and transforming anything. This is what God does. God specializes in taking hopeless situations and flexing his power, giving grace, and transforming it into something beautiful and redeemable. This is exactly what our God does. He's doing it here in Israel 
We notice as Saul is rallying God's people, we see again in verse 7 the, the unity that they come out as one man, very significant, speaks to the importance of God's people living in unity in order to be effective. But then look at verse 8. It specifies how many there were. There are 300,000 from Israel, 30,000 from Judah. We think, okay, cool, nice data point there. We kind of quickly move on. Well, those numbers are significant. They're multipliers of three. It makes us think about another uh, multiplier of three, uh, the time of Gideon in Judges 7, where he pulled through God's power an incredible upset, upset against the Midianites with only 300 men. And oh, by the way, Gideon was also experienced that rush of the Spirit of God that led them into incredible victory, another amazing upset of God's miraculous intervention. Also, verse 8, notice where uh, Saul takes them. He takes them to a place called Bezek. This is about as north as you could get. But Bezek, the significance of this, this was the first military victory of Israel in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 1. The reason why that's significant is because that's after Joshua had died, the big, mighty leader after Moses, and God's people are facing the Canaanites. And in order for them to win, what happens there? They, they have to be unified. And so two tribes in particular, you've got Judah and Simeon, they have to come together and be unified in order to defeat a common enemy. You see what's happening here? We're getting these, these events and these episodes that's supposed to take us back to what God did in Israel's history to show us God was faithful here, God will be faithful now. That continues on. We see in verse 9, Saul sends out these messengers back to Jabesh, and it is a message of hope. Basically, salvation is coming. Deliverance is on its way. Tomorrow, we will have victory. Man, can we just stop for a moment and just see how Saul is leading? He's leading so well. He's filled with the Spirit of God, and he's doing what he needs to be doing. We need to highlight that because in the future, it's not going to be that way. Even, even from a military perspective, this plan that he puts in place is genius. He's taking a page from Gideon's book. He divides up the men into three different companies, and they basically have a surprise attack under the cover of darkness. That morning watch is from 2 to 6 a.m., and they surprise attack the Ammonites, and there is decisive victory. By the heat of day, Jabesh Gilead is delivered. It's a remarkable scene here. They're against all odds. God's people are disjointed. They're kind of doing their own thing. Jabesh Gilead did not step up a few decades before, and yet they're the very ones that are saved. We're beginning to wonder that question at the end of chapter 10, verse 27. How can this man save anyone? We're beginning to wonder, hmm, maybe he can save somebody. God's power, maybe he can lead well. Well, notice what happens next. After this victory, verses 12 through 13, we have an example of Saul's mercy. The people wanted to put to death those naysayers who doubted Saul at the end of chapter 10. Saul says, no, no more bloodshed. And then he gives glory to God. He says, God has brought salvation, more good leadership by Saul. But then notice what happens. Verse 14, Samuel calls all of Israel to assemble where? At Gilgal. 
right, Gilgal. This was on the west side of the Jordan River. But notice how Gilgal-centric these two verses are, verses 14 and 15. Shows up, it's referenced seven different times in those two verses. What's the significance there? Why, why the emphasis on Gilgal? Well, Gilgal was the location of another example of God's miraculous deliverance for his people. Joshua chapters three and four. It's basically the, the parting of the Red Sea, take two. Instead of the Red Sea, it was the Jordan River that God parted in order to save and deliver his people, right? And in response to that, what they do, God's people, is that they set up 12 stones to memorialize that episode of deliverance. So every time God's people went back to Gilgal, there are those 12 stones. And those 12 stones are preaching. Those 12 stones are preaching, God is faithful. God is the one who delivers us. God is the one who saves. We can trust in him. So now we've got Samuel and Saul, God's people, they're back at Gilgal. Those 12 stones are still there. Those 12 stones are still preaching. And you can add another example of God's faithfulness, God delivering, and God saving his people against all odds. Man, how faithful is the Lord here? Again, as we see the Lord save his people against the Ammonites. But then notice uh, the Israelites' response here. They're offering some sacrifices. They're rejoicing greatly, but then they make Saul king before the Lord. Oh, didn't we just do this last chapter? Well, why are we doing this again? Well, that phrase there, before the Lord, is very significant. Taking that with verse 14 about how they renewed the kingdom, meaning they renewed their allegiance to the rule and reign of God. They are saying, hey, we're going to start off this monarchy the right way, that our first king, King Saul, is going to be in submission to our God. It's a very significant moment. They want Saul, they want this whole new leadership structure to start off the right way. But man, what a roller coaster ride. Emotionally, this chapter's been. Verse four, they're weeping. Verse seven, they're filled with this, this terror, this dread. Now they're rejoicing greatly. Up and down, up and down is the tempo of 1 Samuel that we're going to continue to experience as we move forward. And yet Saul here is starting off well because of the Spirit's power. Now, as I've mentioned, this, these events happened 3,000 years ago. And we think, man, what's the relevance for us today? We're not in physical combat with an enemy. Like, how, how do we apply this to our day and age right now uh, as the church? Well, there are many actually takeaways in this chat. Let me give you three practical takeaways as we think about 1 Samuel 11. Here's the first one, is to engage in the spiritual battle. Engage in the spiritual battle. As I mentioned in the introduction, the New Testament largely describes the Christian life as spiritual warfare. It's not, it's not a playground, it is a battleground that yes, Jesus has won the victory, but we cannot have this peacetime mentality because we have a real spiritual enemy. And so my exhortation for us this morning is to not sleepwalk spiritually, but to engage in the war that's happening all around us. So you might, you might think, well, what does that look like practically? How do I do that? Well, number one, yes, understand you have a real enemy. 
This enemy, Satan himself, is described as a roaring lion that he's seeking someone to devour. And so, yes, he's been defeated by Jesus on the cross and the resurrection, but he's not passive. He's not dormant, that he's, he's prowling around. He's luring people in. He's tempting and deceiving and lying. And his aim is to do far worse than just to gouge out our right eyes. He wants to destroy your soul. And so I'm not calling us to look for a demon behind every bush, but I am saying that there is far more going on in the spiritual realm than you and I could ever realize. I've had personally a few different experiences of this that I would say absolutely it's real, and it's absolutely something that we need to be on guard against. Because like warfare, man, our enemy studies us. Do you know that? You got a bullseye on your back if you're a follower of Jesus. Our enemy studies us, probably knows you better than you know yourself. He knows the areas of weakness. He knows where you're most susceptible. He knows when, like time of day, when you're weakest. Man, he's been doing this for thousands of years. Probably knows the Bible better than a lot of us know the Bible. And he knows exactly what snare and trap to lay for you to take that bait and for you to fall into sin. Look, his aim, look, he, he doesn't just want you to have a bad day. He, he doesn't just want you to be a little bit flustered. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your testimony. He, he wants to destroy your purity. He wants to destroy your heart and your relationship with God. Man, he wants you just to be another statistic. Just another person who grew up in church, professed faith, and yet walked away from the Lord. And my concern is if you're not aware of this real spiritual enemy, if you don't know his tactics, how in the world are you going to stand firm? Like if you think that this is largely just a playground and we're just have happy times together and yeah, we've got peace with God, but everything's fine, like how are you going to stand firm against the enemy's attacks? If you're unaware of what's happening in the spiritual realm, the enemy has you right where he wants you. So what do we do? So don't just be aware of the enemy. Number two, I'd say put on the armor of God. Use what God has made available. Like any war, in order to defeat our enemy, we need to have the right equipment. And what God has provided for us is protective armor, but also Offensive, offensive weapons, and they matter. Uh, Ephesians 6 again says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the armor of God. This isn't tea time. We're not going down the slide together, playing in the mulch. No, put on the armor of God. This is warlike language, right? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And a few verses later, lists the offensive weapons that we have, the, the things that we need to put our, our lives around, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit. These are all the weapons that God has graciously, generously has given to us. My question for you is, are you using them? Do you know how to use them? 
uh, truth and righteousness, the gospel, faith, the spirit of God. Are you using those, those, those weapons on a daily basis? Do you understand that every time you use one of these weapons, you're engaging in warfare? Like every time you share the gospel, you're engaging in warfare. Every time you exercise faith, the shield of faith, where you say, God, I'm going to trust in what you say and not in what I see, not in what my flesh wants, you're engaging in warfare. Every time you exercise this idea of righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness, and you say no to temptation and yes to what is righteous, what is holy, what is obedience, you're engaging in warfare. Every time you, you pray together as a family and you say, we trust in King Jesus, that's not some rote tradition that you're doing. You are engaging in warfare. Every time that you do one of these things, you're fighting in a very real battle. And my challenge, my encouragement to you is to continue to do that. Understand that this is a war over what is real. I'm not trying to scare you this morning. I'm trying to sober you. Don't underestimate our enemy. Our enemy wants to take us down. At the same time, don't underestimate God. God is on our side, and God has guaranteed victory. He says we will win in the end because of Jesus. Now, in the meantime, we have these amazing promises. He says, greater is he who is in you, the Spirit of God, than he who is in the world. Jesus says, have peace in this world. You will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. All right, you're not in neutral territory. Engage in the battle. Secondly, another application point is to cultivate this healthy fear of the Lord. We've hit this a few times throughout the book of 1 Samuel, but I do want to make a couple other connections here because yes, we have a real enemy. Yes, there's a real spiritual war going on, but don't fear that. Don't fear them. Cultivate this healthy fear of God because the thing about 1 Samuel 11, God is actually the main character of this story that it's not Saul. Saul was able to lead well. Why? Because the spirit of God filled him, right? Why did God's people rally together? It's because the fear of God filled them. This is all about God and his power and his his immense uh, ability to save his people. But indirectly, there is a call here for how we ought to respond to God. Uh, We should respond the same way that God's people responded to have this healthy fear of the Lord fill our hearts. And in fact, not just to be filled with it, but to cultivate it. That we, we, in order to be an effective believer, you've got to operate with this healthy fear of God. Now, there is a big difference between healthy, godly fear of the Lord and an unhealthy fear of the Lord. Unhealthy fear of the Lord is what unbelievers have. Unbelievers who aren't in right relationship with God, that is a terrifying thing. What they know to be true is condemnation, is rejection, is an eternity, at least the path they're on, of being separated from God forever and ever. That is a fearful position to be in. But for us who have been saved and redeemed and accepted by Jesus, we don't have that unhealthy fear we have this healthy fear of God 
that in an experiential way, for us, it's having this awe of him, being in awe of his holiness, having a, a deep reverence for his power, having this awesome respect for the magnitude of his being, having an, an appropriate trembling, this almost this knee-buckling type of, of response to the bigness of God. And the reason why we need this is because this healthy fear drives out flippancy. It drives out this way too casual way that we tend to interact with the Lord. It drives out complacency and it, it leads toward obedience. It leads toward taking sin seriously. It leads toward a position of dependency upon God. In fact, the way that the scriptures describe this fear of the Lord, it's the, the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9.10. It's the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1.7. This fear of the Lord is to characterize our worship. Hebrews 12, verses 20 and 29 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. What kind of worship? With reverence and awe. Why? For God is a consuming fire. Cultivate a healthy fear of the Lord. <clears throat> and then thirdly here, the last takeaway from this passage is to receive salvation from King Jesus. Receive it. As I point out, the chapter's main theme is salvation. Saw it in chapter 10, verse 27. Saw it three other times in chapter 11. So the fact that there's salvation happening presupposes that God's people needed to be saved. They needed to be rescued. They needed to be delivered. And here's the reality. So do you. And so do I, that you and I, we need to be saved. We need to be delivered. We need to be rescued, but from something far worse than having our right eye gouged out, you and I, we need to be saved from our sin, from the bondage of our sin and, and the consequences of our sin, that because of our rebellion against God, our creator, the consequences is eternal separation from God forever and ever. And we've got something in common with Jabesh Gilead. Just like Jabesh Gilead, we're unable to save ourselves. We're unable to, to fix our situation. And so what we need is a king to come and save us. We need not an earthly king. We need an eternal king who can actually save us. And this king, when he was born, the angels announced in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, that this baby... His name is Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. That we have a king, his name is Jesus, and he is able to save us and deliver us and rescue us from our sin and our condemnation. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah and the king who will save us from our ultimate enemy, Satan himself. You know, throughout this chapter, I just kept coming back to Nahash. His name literally means serpent. And I kind of chuckled at this chapter, just seeing him with such arrogance. And yet what happens in the end is that he's crushed. That the snake, the serpent here, is defeated. And then I thought about another serpent in the Bible. Serpent Satan himself. And the promise in Genesis 3.15 is that a descendant of, of Eve 
will come and crush the head of that serpent. And that's exactly what happened 2,000 years ago, that Jesus got up on a cross and that he not only paid for our sins, he not only paid our penalty, but three days later, he rose again in victory over sin, over the grave, and over that serpent, Satan himself. And he won the victory once and for all. And my question for us today as we close, I just have one question, is have you received this salvation that King Jesus offers you today? Jesus can save you. He can deliver you. He can rescue you. And I know some of us have received that. Some of us have by faith accepted that, but maybe there's someone in this room who hasn't. Maybe someone who would say, I need to be delivered. I need to be rescued from my sin. I'm I'm in a state of condemnation before a holy God, and I can't save myself. Look, we, would, we want you this morning, even in this moment, to give your life to Jesus and say, yes, I believe in faith that Jesus is king, and what Jesus accomplished on the cross was for me, that he paid my penalty, he rose again three days later, and he offers eternal life for me who believes in Jesus. We want you to make that decision if you have not yet. In fact, I'm gonna give you a moment right now as I close in prayer for you to cry out in faith to give your life to Jesus and accept his free gift of grace. Just give you a moment to do that. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes before I pray. If that is you, you need saving today, you need to be delivered, you need to be rescued, cry out to King Jesus in this moment. Jesus, as your gathered church here this morning, we declare that you and you alone are king. That you have already secured the victory through your death on the cross and through your resurrection. You have trampled and triumphed over our enemy. And Lord, we give you praise for that. We will forever rejoice and give you glory and honor for the victory. Lord, I pray for those in this room, Lord, who cried out to you for salvation Lord, I pray that you would help them to follow you, that each and every day they would demonstrate obedience and submission to you. But God, we thank you for the victory in Jesus. We give you praise in his name, amen.